Well, welcome back, everyone. We have a very special guest on the Christian Collins Show today. We have David Barton, the founder of Well Builders. He's done so much throughout our country uh, to educate everyone on our nation's founding, our nation's founding fathers. Uh, it's an incredible and most exceptional nation in the world. And there's nobody better to talk about that, nobody more qualified to talk about that than David Barton. David, thank you so much for being on today. Hey, Christian, my pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. Well, I, I always like to ask people that have really done something that's remarkable. How did you get started? Um, if you could give any advice to someone out there that wants to do something great with their life, uh, what would you do? Or what would you advise them to do? How would you educate them to, to maybe uh, take a risk or, or to do something that's maybe outside the box? I think one of the key things is asking questions, uh, being open for looking for things that are outside the box in the sense that my first love is truth. I want truth wherever it leads. Uh, I had a professor one time that said, you know, the Bible says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. If Jesus is truth, you want to you want to acknowledge truth wherever you find it. If somebody says two plus two equals four, you don't say, well, I don't believe that. You acknowledge truth. And so what I learned was anywhere I find truth, even in the most unlikely places, if it is true and I can prove it's true, then I have to embrace that. And so for me, I started out um, right now, I'm, I'm into history a lot. I mean, what you see behind me, um, for example, over this shoulder, this is a D-Day flag. This is a World War II section in our collection. Uh, that flag is from D-Day, one of the third, the third ship in. World War II back there off to the side over here. It's a lot of education stuff from the 1840s to the 1890s. Um, you see behind me over on this side, some American Revolution uniforms. I mean, we're, we're into history, but I was never there. I hated history. I stayed away from history. I did not like history. And a lot of it was because of what my history teachers told me. But then after I left school and was out of college for a while and had a job, I came across some really old historical documents that I had been taught about in school. And when I read the actual documents that I'd been taught about, the actual documents said quite opposite of what I'd been told that they said. And so when I read those old documents, I go, oh, my gosh, you know, what do I do? I mean, here's my education, but I'm seeing the originals for myself, and they're so different. And so I'm in a choice of do I go with my education? Do I go with what my professors taught me? Do I go with what I heard? Or do I go with what I'm seeing with my own eyes? And as a result, we started collecting history. And so now we own probably about 120,000 items from before 1812. So if you want to talk wow. about the founding of America, if you want to talk about, about black history in early America or church history or judicial history or military history or whatever you want to talk about, we have thousands of writings from the George Washingtons and the John Adams and the James Madisons and all the others, thousands from early black founding heroes and the American founding. I mean, we got so much stuff. And, and so now I really don't care what a textbook says one way or the other because I've got the originals I can see. Now, I do care about textbook because I care about truth. And I want the textbooks to be teaching the truth. So as a result of that, we do a lot of work all over the nation with a number of states. We're asked by state boards of education to help write the history and government standards for those states because truth really does matter. And this is one of the issues we've got right now with even what we see with the protests and, and BLM and everything else is, you know, they're passionate, but a lot of what they're doing is not based on truth. And a lot of the statues that they have torn down are actually are the very things they think they're trying to defend. But since they don't know who those guys are and don't know the story, it's not just Confederate statues that are coming down. I mean, they torn down the statue of Frederick Douglass. Are you kidding me? Civil rights leader from the 1800s. I, I thought you guys wanted equality. And now you're tearing down heroes. 
So it's really a situation today where the people run on sound bites rather than on truth and knowledge. And so what I would say is you have to dig in for yourself. What I got from school and what I got from my professors was not what the truth actually was. And so don't just take what you hear. Um, for me as a Christian, there's a great Bible verse in, in the book of Acts where that Paul, who in the early Christian tradition is probably the most educated, the most credentialed apostle in Christianity. And he said, I love these guys in, in Berea because when I go there, they won't believe anything I say until they check it to see if it's true. That's exactly the point. Doesn't matter how many PhDs you got, you need to check what you hear and see if it's true. And if it is, then you embrace it. Even if it's something you thought you were going to disagree with, you have to conform your life to truth. So that that's the biggest piece of advice I would give is you have to have a love for truth and you have to have the courage to accept truth. Even if it's something that you didn't think it was going to be, even if it contradicts what you've been believing, you have to go with truth. That's so good, David. And you're right. The BLM and Antifa protesters do have passion, but they don't have truth. And that's so important. And you would know a lot about the Bible uh, because you've done the Founders Bible, and I'm so blessed to have this. And uh, last time we met, you signed it for me, and I had a, a really good friend, uh, Bill Ledbetter, uh, give me the Bible. And, and then when I met you finally, because I'd heard about you from Rafael Cruz and a lot of my friends, um, I finally met you and got you to sign it. And so um, I really, really appreciate all the work that you've done, all of the writing, all of the research. Um, all of the speeches, all of the, everything that you've done, David, it, it's really, really remarkable. So I just wanted to uh, credit you for making a big impact on my life and so many of my friends' lives. Um, you're such a blessing. Well, thank you, brother. That's very kind of you to say so, and I'm glad it's been a blessing. Well, and I want to get straight into the issues. Um, you touched on something um, when you were encouraging others to get involved and how you started, you talked about the tearing down of the statues. You talked about um, what's going on right now with the protesters and the looting and the destroying of businesses, the burning down of cities, um, the attacking of the police officers. There's so much going on in our country right now. And, and so what is your message uh, to people that are searching out for truth and especially maybe young conservatives that are looking for answers and are, are, are trying to have the right worldview but are trying to make sense of current events. So what's your message to them right now? There's there's probably a couple things I would say is one is it takes a lot of courage. but second is tactics are important. Um, you can you can have the truth in a lot of ways and not be able to communicate that. And again, as a Christian, I go back to the model of what Jesus did. Um, as he was confronted with people who were hostile, they disagreed with him. They didn't, they didn't like what he was saying. I mean, he got killed for what he was saying, essentially. So there's a lot of enemies. But the model I like of his is that he asked over 300 questions, and his life is recorded in the New Testament of the Bible. And so the use of questions is huge. Um, in, in the summertime, we do leadership training for young people 18 through 25. And one of the tactics that we teach is using questions. And you may know what the truth is, but people don't want to hear your opinion all the time. You have to lead people to find truth for themselves. And you can do that many times by asking questions. And so we show effective ways to ask questions, questions that are not necessarily antagonistic, but they're designed to make you think, kind of the Socratic method type stuff. And in every session that we've had over the past several years, 
we have students who go back and literally convert their professors to different positions on economics, different positions on history, different positions on whatever, because they just ask them questions. And those questions lead them to a conclusion that, that they hadn't thought about. They were just repeating what they were taught by their professors, and they really haven't researched much of the stuff. And so I would say one of the things that, that we need is people who don't always get in the teaching mode, but they get in the guiding and leading mode. I can help you discover truth. I can ask you questions that will get you there. But the other thing is that we need a lot more courage. Uh, I saw polling from last week that 77% of people with traditional values, with conservative views, they remain quiet right now because they feel like if they say something, they'll be attacked. Well, if you don't say something, the perception is going to be that truth is on the other side. And truth is right. not on the other side, but if there's not a countering voice to say that, you know, in our constitution, we talk about you have the right to confront your accusers. And the reason you do that goes back to actually a Bible verse, Proverbs 18, 17, that says one side sounds good until you hear the other. And so in courts of law, if only the defense attorneys presented their case and that was all, we would release everybody that's arrested. But if only prosecutors presented their case, we would we would convict everybody that's been arrested. That's why you have to have a prosecutor and a defense attorney. You listen to both of their cases, you determine where truth is, and you go at that truth. And what we're getting right now is one side of the argument is keeping themselves quiet. They're self-censoring. And so the other side is the only side you're hearing and that's where people are going to go if that's the only information they have. So we have to come up with enough courage to be able to take some flack if we need to. We got to stand for truth. I mean, truth is, as I keep saying, truth is important to me, but not only finding truth, but embracing truth and then defending truth. And I think all of those things go with, with truth. You have to defend it. You have to find it and you have to embrace it. We have to be bold and courageous to be able to yeah. stand up for what's right. Um, you know, you, you talked about young people and, and the program that you have, and I'm going to ask you about that program in just a second. Uh, but um, it's interesting that I've, I've recently learned, and, and there was a soundbite by uh, someone that I've recently come in contact with, Madison Cawthorn, uh, the young man that's running for Congress, and he's likely going to be the, the next congressman there in North Carolina. And uh, I've connected with him, and one, one of the things that he said that was so true and really made me think was many of the founders, they were young when they first got their start. And so George Washington uh, was 21 when he received his first military commission. And in 22 was Abraham Lincoln when he uh, first ran for public office. And uh, Thomas Jefferson was under the age of 35 when he wrote uh, the Declaration of Independence. And many of the signers were under the age of 35. Uh, over a dozen is what I hear. And uh, in Madison, James Madison, when uh, the Bill of Rights and the Constitution was written, he was under the age of 35, if I'm not mistaken. So it's it's just interesting how young people have really played a role in making a difference in our nation's founding. Uh, what do you have to say about that? And, and also, please tie in your program that you have for young people every summer. I'd love to learn more about that. Well, I, I got to tell you, Chris, I'm going to be sarcastic here for a minute. So spoiler alert, sarcasm coming. Um, these guys you're talking about, George Washington, 21, and and, and James Madison and, and Jefferson, you're talking about a bunch of old guys. I mean, those are the old guys. 
What yeah. you need to be talking about are guys like Orion Howe, who at the age of 14 received the Medal of Honor at Vicksburg. Or you wow. need to talk about John Clem. When he was 12 years old, he was a lieutenant in the Union forces uh, at Chickamauga. Or, or you need to talk about John Quincy Adams. When he was eight years old, he had his musket out with the Massachusetts Minutemen. Or let's talk about Andrew Jackson. When he's 11 years old, he's already a prisoner of war captured by the British for fighting the British. I mean, those are your young guys. I mean, what you're talking about, Colin, <laughs> that's a bunch of old guys, man. Wow. But, but that, that really is a thing that, that what you see in history, it's not your age. It's not your chronology that makes a difference. It's when you want to engage and when you want to develop yourself. And, and guys like John Quincy, I'll just take John Quincy out for a minute. Eight years old. He's out with the Massachusetts Minutemen, all the musket stuff, all, all the drills. He knows it all. Military guy. When he's 10 years old, at the age of 10, John Quincy Adams is now the secretary to the ambassador to France. When he's 14 years old, Congress sends him to the court of Catherine the Great in Russia. When wow. he's 16 years old, Congress sends him to arrange the peace negotiations to end the American War for Independence. So by the time he's 16, he's already done all this stuff. When he's 21 years old, George Washington said he is the best foreign diplomat we have in the entire foreign court. Wow. So... It's not what your age is. It's when you start to, it's when you decide to start engaging. Age, age is a superficial thing. And this is one of the problems we have with progressives. Back in the 1920, progressives redid education in five major areas. And one of the areas is they went to age graded uh, classes. So if you're eight, you're going to be in third grade or nine or whatever it is. Before that, it was all based on your knowledge. So you had eight grade levels of school, but they were based on knowledge. So one year you might go through three grades if that's what your knowledge level grew, or you might be in one level for two years. It just, it was all knowledge based. And so the, the interesting part of that is we really didn't care about age, but here's the deal. Until 1920, eighth, eighth level of education was as far as you went. 1920, you took an eighth grade exit exam once you're done with eighth grade, you're 12 years old, generally. Once you're done with that, you either get a career or go to college, one or the other. So it didn't matter. But at 12, you're, you're a full-grown man, woman. You're, that's where you're going. And so progressives changed that said, no, we really need 12 levels of education. And we should divide it not on knowledge but based on, on age. And so age now becomes important. Well, we all know 14-year-olds that are more mature than 45-year-olds. You know, It's not age that gives you maturity or knowledge or anything else. It's what you do and what you develop and how much you feed yourself. You have to become a self-feeder. And that's what we had in America until the progressives really took it in 1920. So age should be, uh, let me see if I can say this right. At the time, now I got white hair. You know, Christian, you clearly don't. Different generation. So my generation, the age of adolescence was considered 18. When you were 18, you were an adult because... That's when you registered to vote, and that's when you could, could be drafted, and that's when you did military service, and that's when you could get a loan. That's when you could buy a car. You could sign a mortgage. The federal government four years ago said the age of adolescence now goes to 35 years old. So they're saying that at 35, we're still an adolescent. Are you kidding me? Wow. And see, what they, they did is said, well, that's because you, you, you're 35 before you get a stable job, before you get in a stable relationship, and before you own your own home. See, what we're doing is instead of looking at behavior as a standard, we're setting, artificial, we're setting it based on behavior rather than other standards. And so, man, at eight years old, there's, you know, I've got an eight-year-old grandson that's driving my truck across the ranch because I've been teaching him to drive for several years. I'm not going to wait till he's 16, 17, 18 
That, that's an artificial construction. I don't have, I, age doesn't mean anything. What's your ability? What's your skill? What can you learn? What can you do? And you can learn at a young age. So that, that'd be my challenge is don't let, don't let society put artificial constraints on you that tell you what you can or can't do, that you're old enough or not old enough or you're too old or, you know, whatever it is. That's artificial stuff. Throw it off. You, you decide where you want to head and you seek truth. You pursue truth. You work hard. You have boldness. You have courage. You'll get there. And that's that's what we're lacking today that we had in previous generations. That's so good. And the antithesis of that, you're not too old to do your goals either is a is a great um, concept as well, because I've seen Rafael Cruz and you know him well. And I've seen I got to travel the country with him going all over the country. And one of the things that I saw is this 76 year old man would run from place to place. He, he had so much energy and um and, and, and obviously, uh, if you really put your mind to something and you take good care of yourself, then you can do anything that a young man can do. And I just was trying to keep up with him. And, and so um, age uh, shouldn't be a barrier, whether too young or too old. Um, it, it's really about your mindset and about your goals and your abilities. And, and we, have to, we have to stay at this place where, where we're always learning. And if we do yeah. that well, then we're going to be successful. Well, there's so much I want to ask you about. Um, but with current events going on, there's a lot of talk about our founding fathers being racist uh, slave owners. And, and so then, therefore, uh, because some of them might or might not have owned slaves, um, then everything that they designed, uh, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, throw it all out because the document is a racist document. Um, it, it's there's a lot of talk about our founding fathers uh, because they're tearing down statues. It started out, as you alluded to earlier, uh, going after the Confederate statues, but now they're going after George Washington, which would have been unthinkable at, at another point in history, maybe just 10 years ago. That would never have been something that anyone would ever have thought to do. And now you see imagery of, of of a torn down George Washington statue with graffiti all over it. It's terrible. So, well, um, yeah, yes, it, who it were it our is. founding fathers? Yeah. Yeah. And before I jump the founding fathers, let me go even further than what you talked about, because not only are they tearing down founding fathers, let's, let's just say, let's say anybody in the South is a racist. Now they're, they're not, but that's kind of BLM's approach. So any statute that's in the South has to come down. Yeah. Well, okay. If, if you say the South is racist, I, I, I don't believe that there are there's definitely racism in the South and there's institutional racism in the South. But see what you're not talking about, BLM, is the fact that we had blacks elected in, in Maryland in 1641. We had blacks elected in New Hampshire in 1768. We had blacks elected in, in Pennsylvania in 1793. You don't see that in the South. You see that in the North. What you guys are talking about is what occurred in the South. You're not talking about the fact that in Massachusetts there never was a time when blacks could not vote. You're not talking about the fact that at the time the U.S. Constitution was ratified, half the states blacks voted in half the states in Baltimore. Eighty-five percent of the black population voted to ratify the Constitution of Baltimore. See, you're looking at Georgia and South Carolina, and you think that the entire nation is Georgia and South Carolina, and it's not. And so what you get is a little bitty side of the story. But even even, even if I say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the premise that everything in the South was racist, but it's not. I'm going to give you that premise. Then tell me why you went to Cleveland and tore down the Union statues in Cleveland of the Union soldiers and sailors. Tell me why you went to Boston and tore down the Massachusetts 54th, 
which is the Black Regiment, the Breakthrough Regiment, and the Civil War. Why are you up in Massachusetts tearing it? Why did you go to Denver at the state capitol and tear down the Union Soldiers and Sailors Monument and, and there? And, and why did you go to Washington, D.C. and go after the World War II Veterans Memorial? And why did you go to Birmingham and tear down the World War I Memorial in Kansas City, the World War I Memorial? Why did you go to Indiana and tear down the World War II Memorial? Why did you go to New York and tear down the 9-11 Memorial? Tell me what that's got to do with racism. And if you're saying racism is in the South and racism is Confederate, say, then why did you tear down Ulysses S. Grant, who did the anti-Klan laws, six civil rights laws? He led the entire military to defeat the Southern Confederacy. I mean, what you're doing is you're tearing down everything. The media is saying, oh, it's all about racism. No, it's not. It's about tearing down America, and founding fathers are part of that. Now, the problem we have with, with the founding fathers is, and talked about the classes that we do in the summer for young people for leadership training. Um, sharp, sharp young people. I, I love, I've never been so encouraged because of the quality that I see in the coming generation. Just so good. Good thinkers in so many areas. So many of them are just really, really strong. So we may have 40 in a class. And, and so in a class we'll have 40. And I can put up a picture of the signers of the Constitution and say, who are these guys? Call them by name. Now, there's 55 guys who wrote the Constitution. There is 39 guys who signed it. There's 56 guys who did the Declaration of Independence. There's 90 who did the Bill of Rights. All total, we have about 250 founding fathers. All 40 of these college students together came up with four names out of 250. Four names, the signers of the Constitution, etc. And so what happens is we let the entire image of the founding fathers be built around the three or four that we have been taught to know. Uh, we don't know so many of the founding fathers. I, I was at a black law school, teaching at a black law school, and I put up a picture of the signers and declaration said, you know, isn't it really terrible that America was founded by a bunch of racist, bigot slave owners? And they all said, yep, it is. And I said, by the way, these 56 signers of the declaration, who up there owned slaves? Thomas Jefferson. You're right, he did. Who else owned slaves? They couldn't come up with another name. I said, so let me see if I get this right. One of the 56 owned slaves, that makes them all racist and all bigots and all slave owners. And being in a law school, they recognize that's a really bad argument. You can't look at one and say everybody is that. That's less, you know, you're, you're talking about one and a half percent of the, the founders and the signers. So what happens is we don't know the signers of the Declaration, Benjamin Rush and, and, and um, Benjamin Franklin, excuse me, Benjamin Rush, Benjamin Franklin started the first abolition society in America. Uh, Benjamin Franklin ran the Pennsylvania Abolition Society. Benjamin Rush ran the National Abolition Movement. We don't know that William Ellery, signer of the Declaration, introduced the first national anti-slavery law. We have no clue that James Wilson, signer of the Declaration, started the first law school in America. And in his law books, he taught how wrong that slavery was, that it violated the laws of nature and of nature's God. We have no idea that John Witherspoon, a signer of the Declaration, was president of Princeton and taught black students and white students at Princeton. <gasps> they didn't do that. Yes, they did. There are so many things we can point to, but today, the right way this works is we're going to take 250 founding fathers, reduce it to three or four, and tell you bad things about those three or four, and then you'll hate all of them. So what happens is they tear down the Caesar Rodney statue in Delaware. People may not know who Caesar Rodney is. Caesar Rodney is a signer of the Declaration of Independence. If you look on the state quarters on the back of the Delaware quarters, it's got a guy riding on horseback. That's Caesar Rodney. He's key in, in helping the Declaration be passed. He was anti-slavery, and we tore him down. Yeah, he's a founding father. He's a slave owner. No, not by a long shot. 
you tear, you tear down the statue of Ben Franklin at Washburn Law School in Kansas. He's a slave owner. No, he's not a slave owner. He's the guy who led the national anti, anti-slavery movement. See, it's that kind of stuff. Now, in all honesty, and I believe you, you go after truth, the good, the bad, the ugly, out of the founding fathers, about one-fourth of them were pro-slavery. Okay, three-fourths were not. And don't make the whole thing look like the one-fourth. We can talk about the one-fourth, and, and we can talk about George Walton and others wrong on slavery. We can talk about Pink, uh, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, Charles Pinckney, others wrong on the, the race issue. But that's not the whole story. The story is the three-fourths we refuse to talk about. By the way, newsflash, America was the first nation in the history of the world to sign a law banning the slave trade. We did that in 1807. Thomas Jefferson signed that law. America was number four in the world to ban slavery. Now, we banned slavery in 1865. Imagine that. Only three nations banned slavery before we did. One was Great Britain, 1833. Then you have Denmark. Then you have France. 1865, we banned slavery. We're the fourth nation in the world. There were 124 nations in the world back then. We're in the top 1%. So we banned slavery. And even though it's only 150 years ago, that means slavery was common in the world until about 150 years ago, and America helped turn the attitude towards slavery. Today, if people want to talk about racism and slavery, now I, I'm, I help, I'm head of a group, uh, a group we work internationally to free slaves. And we don't just free slaves, we have soldiers that we hire from other nations to go in and take slaves away from ISIS. Sex slavery is a big deal all over the world, even here where we are in Texas. Dallas, there are 300 new sex slaves a day introduced into Dallas. So this is a big problem. We actually go in and rescue. Two of our guys have been shot and killed in fighting the bad guys to get slaves away from them. One of our guys have been shot 17 times and keeps going back to rescue slaves. You see, the, the issue is that today in the world, there are 40 million people in the world today in slavery. That's more slaves than we had in 374 years of the African slave trade. If you go from 1501 to 1874, when the African slave trade is finally banned, that was about 13 million people in that time. We have 40 million today. Africa today has 9.2 million. Why are you yelling about America when we got 40 million in the world? Why don't you you look at the world if you're concerned? And by the way, on top of that, there's 195 nations in the UN today, and 94 of those nations still have not criminalized slavery. So half the world still has not criminalized slavery, and you want to yell about America? And by the way, on the world scale, only one nation in the world today does more to fight racism and more to fight slavery than America, and that's the Netherlands. America is number two in the world in what we do to fight slavery and racism, and we don't hear that from our professors. We don't hear that from all the folks stirring up the bad stuff. That's where truth is so important. Go back and look at what America did, and America is still doing. Look at the rest of the world and compare it we're not perfect man we got warts on our our nose but we don't have as many warts in our nose as the rest of the world does and that's significant that's so true david and and though america is not a perfect nation just because people aren't perfect uh, we are an exceptional nation and god has used our country tremendously to spread freedom and democracy to be liberators all throughout the world and that's because he's gifted america to the world It, it really is god's gift to the world and as Ronald Reagan referred to her, it's that shining city on a hill. And that's what America is. And America, if it were to have always lived up to its own ideals, uh, as stated in the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, and that all men are created equal. 
then if, if we continue to live that way uh, and, and go about law that way, then we will be okay. Um, I, I, I am so optimistic about our country, even in spite I of what's too. going on, uh, because we've lasted this long, and I, I, don't think, uh, I don't think the good Lord is done with us yet. And so yeah, I'm it, see it's it. interesting that in looking at polling right now, so much of the nation is, is opposed to what they see chattering up top. I mean, the, the polling shows that we're really still pretty strong in so many areas. But the problem is that so many of those who believe that is not talking about it. They're not saying anything. They don't have the courage to stand up. And so whether it be the protests and the riots, and, and this, is, this is one of the most mystifying things to me. BLM is leading the defund the police movement. And yet polling in America shows that the single group that most opposes defunding the police is the black community. Black community overwhelmingly supports the police and wants more funding for police. And BLM is out leading in the fund of police movement. Now, that's oxymoronic, but you see, you just don't hear the other side. You hear the BLM side, but you don't see the polling on the other side. And we see so much of that going with the protest, the pro, you know, Portland now 100 plus days and still going. And, and so that looks like Seattle and, and all the Denver and all these places. It looks like that, that's the way it is. That's not. You look at where the nation is, only 10% of the nation supports tearing down the statues. Only 10%. 84% think statues ought to remain. You don't get that by watching the news and watching the protests and watching what's happened. And then you got all these governors and mayors who are letting the protests continue. And, and it's interesting to me that this has become a partisan issue. It shouldn't be. This is an American issue. But when you look right now, the polling we just saw said that right now, 75% of Republicans think that these riots and, and violent protests should come to an end. 58% of Democrats said that they think the protesters should continue protesting until the protesters want to stop protesting. So keep b burning down buildings and keep burning down businesses and keep tearing down statues until you guys want to stop. That's why the Democrat National Convention said nothing about the protests, didn't address the defund the, the police. Republicans did. But the nation is not with the Democrats on that issue, and they're not with the blue cities. We've already seen the, that even in very reliably blue states like Washington State, Governor Inslee is now going to face a primary because he has so angered the voters in his own blue state that they're not with him anymore. We're seeing that across the nation. The people are turning against these blue governors because they are, they're not radicals. You know, The governors may be, and they're letting all the radicals do the stuff. Most Americans are still pretty solid, pretty grounded, pretty good, according to polling. And at some point, if that group stands up, we can put a stop to all this nonsense that's going, that's getting all the coverage right now. And I don't mean a violent stop. I mean, simply by voicing our opinion, politicians are scared of losing. And if they thought that the, most of the nation was opposed to them not shutting down the riots, they would do what happened in, in Minnesota, shut that riot down within three hours after burning for six days, finally say it's not going to happen anymore. Three hours later, it's done. It doesn't have to go 100 days like they're letting here. And by the way, the one in Seattle finally shut down when the protesters went to the mayor's house and got into the mayor's stuff. And the mayor said, okay, that's it. No more for you guys. Well, that's what the rest of America is saying is don't treat yourself different. We don't want them tearing up our stuff. So if that set of Americans who have those values actually sound off and be become heard, we will see a rapid change at the political class. That's for sure. And, and something you said that was so interesting is that only 10% feel a certain way, and yet look what's happening across our country. That's right. And when you have a vocal and, and mobilized minority in 
on one side and then you have the silent majority on the other, it'll look like the vocal minority is winning, especially if they're getting all of the news coverage because the media is in cahoots with the Democrat Party. And that's why the silent majority, the so-called silent majority, cannot stay silent anymore. We have to speak up, as you've been talking about, David. We have to get involved in the political process. We have to make a difference. Uh, if we lose this election, and I know it's been said before that every election cycle, it's always the most important election, maybe every four years. But this, this there couldn't be a, a bigger dichotomy between the two sides. Uh, on one side, you have law and order, you have freedom, you have limited government, fiscal responsibility. You have uh, the America that you sh you've, you've grown up believing in that you can pursue the American dream. And on the other side, you have lawlessness. You have anarchy, chaos, globalism. You have socialism. And um, they believe that America is a mistake and they apologize for America and they hate America. Many of them hate America. Not all of them, but, but many of the leftists do. And there are some good liberals that don't, but again, there are many leftists that do. And so we've got to win this election because it's not just their side that may win, their team wins, and our team will win next time, like it's a basketball series, you know, in the best of seven. No, if we lose this election, we may not have a country because there will be open borders, there will be so many things that will change. They may try to stack the Supreme Court. Um, there's so much at stake in this election. Uh, they may do away with the, the I mean, the Electoral College. Um, they, they could make Washington, D.C. a state and give them two more senators to uh, usurp the current balance of, of, of the, the, the Senate and it's and it working with uh, the House uh, there in Congress. So there's so much going on right now, and Democrats are are seething at the mouth at taking out this president because he's unapologetic, unapologetically supportive of our great and exceptional nation. Um, and you know, I, and, and, and let me kind of put the the last days coming down the election. Let me see if I can put a little perspective on that. Very interesting. Um, last week I was with a, a top national economist who uh, has run presidential campaigns. He's advised numerous presidents, numerous world leaders. He's a conservative guy, and he said he went back, and he's just brilliant. He said he went back and looked at all presidential campaigns since 1963, so the 64, 68, 72 on, and he says an interesting thing between Republicans and Democrats. In every campaign, Republicans, the positions they held on policy, about two-thirds of the nation supported their positions. So if you look at where Trump is, Infanticide, 70% of the nation opposes infanticide. You look at what he's done through building the military, that was highly supported. You look at what he did with Israel and, and Jerusalem. You look at what he did with deregulation. For every one new regulation federally, there's 8.5 being repealed. You look what he did with opening up energy. Uh, first time in 67 years we've been energy dependent. You just look at the policies, economic policies, employment. Uh, roughly two-thirds of the nation is with what President Trump is doing. Now, it's that way every Republican-Democrat election. Generally, two-thirds of the nation is with the Republican policies, but Republicans don't always win the elections. And why is that? Because one-third of the nation always goes with personality. I really like this guy. This guy's got a lot of charisma and grace. I feel like I could sit down and have a beer with this guy, whatever it is. That, that's the lines we hear. So there's one-third that are always personality. And, you know, Biden is the most personable 
of the Democratic candidates, and that's what the Democrats said. He's more moderate than anybody else, so you know we, we're we're choosing him. He's got the best chances of moderate, of, of, and he's not moderate. But that was the the belief. And so what you have now is Biden's a really nice guy, and 35 percent of the people agree. And what you got to do to get off of the policies that Trump has, you have to make people hate Trump as a person. So you have to win on Democrats win on personality. So when it was Jimmy Carter against Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, born again, Christian from Georgia, really nice guy from the South. He's a very nice guy. Didn't care what Ford's policies were. Democrats got the, the personality vote. You had the same thing that happened when it was George H.W. Bush uh, against Bill, Bill Clinton. Because George H.W. Bush, he lost his personality when he said, read my lips, I will not raise taxes. And then he turned around and raised taxes. People said, this character shot. Didn't care what policies were, went against him because of the personality. You had the same thing with Obama. Obama is one of the nicest, most gracious guys, really pleasant. I like his personality. We knew his policies. We knew what he was on infanticide. He voted for infanticide as a senator in Illinois. Policy didn't matter. It was personality. That's where we are with Trump. People overwhelmingly support the policies, but the only way the Democrats can win is to make people hate the, the personality. So what we see right now currently in the media, for every one negative story run on Biden, there's 158 negative stories run on Trump. Now, you notice the Democrat National Convention did not spend any time on Trump's policies. They spent time on how bad a guy Trump is. He's so corrupt. He's involved in these scandals. He's involved with Russia. He's involved with China. He's involved with trying to take Biden down, Hunter Biden. It was all about, we don't like the personality. So that's why there was no talk on protest. There was no talk on so many things that are high on the mind of Americans because they focus on that. And so what happens is the media now, they have their guns pointed at Trump and you'll get new ammunition about once a week so they can reload their guns to shoot Trump. Two weeks ago it was, you know, Trump, when he was over at Normandy, there at the beaches where D-Day occurred, he looked at that cemetery of American soldiers and said, oh, they're a bunch of losers. They got killed. The guys that got killed are losers. Well, who said that? Well, it was an anonymous source. Well, the guys that were with Trump said he didn't say that. We were with him. He never said that. Oh, yeah, but it's not a source. And so now that's all over the news. Look how bad a character Trump is. Look how much he hates military. No. Look what he's done for the military. Look what he's done with the bereaved spouses of those who've been killed. I mean, he, he loves the military, but you got to make it look bad. So last week it was Bob Woodward's book is out. Oh, man, look how lousy a character Trump is. And that's going to be the election from here to the end. That's going to be how bad Trump is. He's going to try to keep the focus on policies. They're going to try to keep the focus on personalities. And that's been the deciding vote in every election since 1963. So just heads up, everybody, you're going to hear attacks like you've never heard on character because they can't win on policies. Democrat policies do not resonate with the people and they they don't poll well. Republican policies do, but you got to stop looking at policies and start looking at personality. So that'll be the battle for the next 50 some odd days till the elections. It's all going to be about attacking personalities. That's so true. And their whole message at the DNC convention was orange man bad. And, yeah, and, and and we had the best convention I think that we've had in a very long time. And I was shocked to see that, in spite of it being virtual, I got to be a national delegate this time. And for position one, I was really excited to prospectively get to go. And then I found out I couldn't go, uh, unfortunately. But getting to watch that RNC convention and 
just how well the president did and how all of the speakers were so engaging. And I heard the president's approval rating with African-American men went up by 10% after that uh, convention. It was just really, really well done. And the fireworks display that Trump put on versus what the Democrats did, it was, it, it, yeah. I mean, it, it was amazing. And uh, well, I mean, he, he does how to one-up people. Yeah. After the convention, Trump's positives among African-Americans were somewhere between 37 and 41%. And you saw how many folks Trump brought on. And I have never seen a, such an uncensored convention in my life. I've been a part of a, a lot of National Republican conventions. And they tell speakers, now, remember, we're shooting for the middle. We don't want to fund people on either side. And they didn't say that to any of the delegates. And so you had people standing up that, you know, that, that colonel that became a nun that is now back in, in the Middle East at, with relief. She prayed and she prayed in Jesus name. And that was, you know, in previous days, oh, don't do that. People might get offended. They let anybody pray however they wanted to, according to conscience, give your own message. And so it was so funny to watch all the people come across the, the, the prison reform effort stuff and the stuff that went uh, with that. So many other things. And watching uh, Democrat media, uh, I say Democrat media, it was mainstream national media, but they were really Democrat. They said, you know, if it wasn't, it, 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 they say people see all all these blacks and Hispanics and women and Asian, but the Republican Party is really white. Wait a minute, what did you just see? And, and so their their thing is we can't we can't let you gain ground and be liked in all these different areas. And so they attack it as racist. And my gosh, the 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 guy from Las Vegas, what a terrific story! The black pastor from Las Vegas and. The guy who was in jail in Las Vegas, the FBI agent, helped, helped convert him and, and get him to faith. And he's now got this terrific ministry. I mean, these are genuine, real people with real stories that have been affected. And the media just dismissed all that and said, no, Republicans, they're all white. Well, that's because the, the favorability ratings among blacks went between 37 and 41 percent after the convention. So there is a lot of movement that's going that, again, we just don't hear about. But the, the numbers are, are clearly there. Now, here's the other thing I'll throw out. In the average presidential election, now, every American, if you're legal, if you're a legal resident, you're eligible to vote if you're over 18. That's what the Constitution says. Right now, only 67.1% of Americans are registered to vote. So one out of three Americans said, I don't care what happens to the country. I'm not going to be part of anything it does. 67% registered to vote. In a presidential election since 1980, the average turnout in a presidential election is 54% of registered voters. 54% of registered voters means 54% of 67.1%, which means only 36% of Americans vote in a presidential election. It takes half of that to win. 18% of Americans have chosen the president of the United States since 1980. That's one out of every five Americans choose the president. That's why getting out and voting makes such a big difference because only one in three Americans vote in a presidential election. We got 330 million Americans and we're gonna have about 100 million votes cast in the election. That's not good, but that's why voting matters and that's why we need to get turned out and get other people turned out, turn off those 158 negative stories, provide a negative story, go back to the issues because the issues are really good. What he's doing with judges, what he's doing with environment, what he's doing is so many things so good don't get distracted with all these birds chirping over here, yelling like a, this morning I woke up and had a whole covey of crows outside my house making noise. That's kind of what the election's like. They're out there yelling and yelling and chirping and yelling and chirping. Ignore it. Pay attention to what policies are and that'll make a difference. Yes, sir. Well, I, I love that encouragement there. And 
parting words, I, I want to ask you about churches because you speak at so many different churches uh, throughout the country. Uh, what do you tell people of faith about getting involved in the political process? I do know that uh, there's a statistic I've, I've heard. I don't know if it's if that's where it is currently. I hope it's getting better. But uh, there's of the church, only 50% is registered to vote. And of those 50%, only 50 actually vote. And it could be a little better or worse now. But um, people of faith need to get involved in the political process. And, and in fact, people of faith always have been because many of the founders were deeply avowed Christian men who loved God. And, and that's one thing that Christians today need to know is that uh, this whole idea of, of the separation of church and state when um, Thomas Jefferson was writing the letter to the Danbury Baptist Church, it was really to protect the church from the state. It wasn't to mean that people of faith that are Christians should not get involved in the political process because we should be salt and light wherever we go. Um, yeah, so, go ahead. Jefferson's, Jefferson's separation letter written January the 1st, 1802 is only 233 words long. It's three paragraphs. It's simple. Jefferson lays it out. Separation church and state is what keeps the government from stopping religious activities. So, the courts used to use Jefferson's letter in its entirety. For example, 1878 Supreme Court case, they used Jefferson's letter. When the court used Jefferson's letter in its entirety, they kept religious activities in public. 1947, it changed. 1947, out of those 233 words, the Supreme Court lifted eight words, a wall of separation between church and state. They ignored the context. No court since 1947 has used Jefferson's full letter, and it's short. You can make a footnote out of it at the bottom of any page in, in the court case. They don't. They use eight words from it. There have been 4,000 First Amendment cases since really about 72, 73, and they quote Jefferson's eight words and not the full context and not even what previous courts used to do. So, Christian, you're exactly right. Separation of church and state means you can't have a national denomination like the Anglican Church in England, like the Lutheran Church in Germany, like the Catholic Church in France. You can't have a national denomination. Everybody gets to choose their faith, and you can't stop expressions of faith. That's why we always had prayer in schools or Ten Commandments up or whatever. So, Christians should be involved. You mentioned the Founding Fathers. So, the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence 29 of them graduated from schools where they got seminary or Bible school degree, what we would call seminary Bible school degrees. A number of them were engaged in Christian ministry of all sorts. So Christians were involved from a faith standpoint for, for faith people. It's God that ordained civil government. That's not man's invention. God came up with civil government. It's real clear. You'll find that in Genesis 9. Um, you, you find that in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, God gives 613 civil laws to deal with everything from immigration through taxes, through military. The government is God's idea. It's not our idea. So to say I'm not going to be involved, that, that's crazy. Don't let people talk you out of being involved in every aspect of life. We should be involved in everything. From the Christian standpoint, I am considered an evangelical, which means it just means I take my faith serious. I'm, I'm serious about my faith. And there's 60 million evangelicals in America, and roughly b between 30 and 35 million of them do not vote. So evangelicals by themselves have the ability to make any election a landslide if they would get out and vote, but th they, they don't. And so that's, that's a disappointment for people of faith. They should feel like God has given them the opportunity to be a good steward of the country, do something good for the country, vote the best leaders possible in, get the best policies possible, but one out of three, again, doesn't register, 
and then you, you roughly have one out of three to 40% that says, I, even though I'm registered, I'm not going to do anything. Christians especially should have a motivation to be a good servant, to serve their neighbors, to be a good neighbor, help get good policies in. We could turn this if we would. We just need to. And, and God cares about our country. He cares about he the affairs that are going on in the world. He really does care. And so elections have consequences. Elections matter. And when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people mourn. And there's so much right. scripture to back this up. Well, David, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule today. I want to ask the best way to keep in touch with you, uh, your Twitter handle, uh, maybe Facebook, your website, and uh, where exactly in Dallas uh, are you located so that those that would like could visit? Yeah, we're west of the Fort Worth, Dallas area. That's where we have all the museum and all the collection, all the kind of stuff you see behind us is there. So we're giving tours through on a regular basis. If you go to the Wolf's website, wallbuilders.com, and Wall Builders taken from the Bible Book of Nehemiah. It's just a grassroots effort. Uh, at Wall Builders, it's linked to all, all of our social media, all of our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Snapchat. Everything is there. Also, the, you, you can see about tours coming through on tours, seeing this original stuff, the Washington Adams, all that kind of stuff. So all that's at wallbuilders.com. There's also thousands of articles there. So about anything that comes up or statue or whatever, we've got stuff there that will give you information that's useful. Well, David, that's excellent, and uh, I encourage anyone that's watching on YouTube or Facebook or subscribed on Apple Podcasts to get involved with Wall Builders. It's an incredible organization, um, and David, thank you so much for all that you do throughout the country. Um, I look forward to connecting with you again very, very soon. God bless you, my friend. Thanks, Christian. Thanks for all you do. God bless you. And God bless all of you watching today, and God bless Texas.